you know, I had done that before and I liked it, but there were things that were frustrating about that experience that working on the digital side solved. But the cycle of going back and forth between those things, I was really missing the feeling of like the weight of something in your hands, the texture underneath your fingers and feeling, you know, when you're frustrated by your lack of demonstrable progress in the corporate mm -hmm. world, the desire to be like, I made this thing. Welcome to Uncooked, a podcast serving up raw insights for marketers as we hear the unfiltered truth from industry experts, brands, and the target audiences we serve in their own words. I'm your host, Jacqueline Lieberman, and today on Uncooked is my guest, Ryan Coulter. He is the founder of the James Brand Knife Company. Ryan's talent for industrial design began with creative director roles at Burton Snowboards and at Nike. He started the James brand back in 2012, and you'd really consider them to be a challenger brand, bucking the big players like Leatherman or Swiss Army. Today, they've carved out a unique space for themselves, hailing out of Portland, Oregon, creating simplistic premium designs to use and really enhance our everyday. So there's lots to get to in this two-parter. Let's dig in. Hey, Ryan. Welcome to Uncooked. I'm so happy to have you. Hey, Jacqueline. Good to be talking to you. So I just want to set things up and frame up for my listeners that you are the founder of the James brand. Your company focuses on designing everyday tools with the hero product that I'm seeing as being pocket knives or knives of some sort, because you believe that what we tend to carry with us every day really does say a lot about a person. Did I get that right so far? Yeah, I mean, it's a pretty good summary of sort of what we're trying to do here, I think. Okay, cool. So I'm excited to talk to you personally because I'm obviously a brand strategy, branding geek myself in my own right, but I get excited when new brands come on the scene, not that you're new because uh, you have been around a bit, but when brands come on the scenes to aim to reinvigorate like a sleepy category or a traditional category like the James brand is doing. So why don't we begin with you describing for my listeners, who is the James brand? What problem did you set out to solve initially? And we'll just go from there. Yeah, it is always fun to come in and try to make noise or, you know, make waves in a space that is fairly stagnant. I think for us, there are a lot of existing pocket knife brands around. There are a lot of them right here in Portland, Oregon. But I really felt like that industry was very stagnant. And that their customer base, I think we've done a really good job of defining their customers kind of into these two very clear tranches of sort of your classic sort of outdoor hook and bullet hunt and fish customer. And then your sort of tactical, either actual honest to gosh, military first responder, or even your soldier of fortune kind of pretend weekend warrior. But I felt like that really left out a whole lot of other people that sort of depend on pocket knives in particular, but more generally the things that they carry with them in their pockets to do their jobs. And with my background, I've been around and exposed to a whole lot of people that are very active and you know, outside doing a lot of stuff that didn't fit into either one of those two buckets very clearly, but who were all using and, and highly dependent on these products. And that to me was, I guess, an opening or, or sort of a gap to be filled. And for myself personally, I had been gifted a pocket knife that I found it very useful and I ended up carrying it day in and day out for decades and kind of surprised myself with its usefulness and, and how often I ended up relying on it. 
but it came from a company that I did not really identify with from a brand perspective. It was actually a licensed product from a major firearms manufacturer. And it wasn't really sort of my thing. And the, and the aesthetic was not really my thing either. It was sort of overbuilt and kind of fussy in a lot of ways. And so I felt like both of those things were problems that could be solved. Both the, the brand positioning of, you know, sort of making some of these products for everybody else. And then aesthetically, from a design perspective, you know, I'm a washed up industrial designer. That is, you know, really where I come from. There was a lot to be done with the concepts of sort of minimalism and being reductive and really bringing things back to their most basic and maybe their most neutral form. And that really had not been done in this industry, at least not very often or very well. And so those are the two big things that we sort of looked to solve for when we started this. So what were you doing at the time? Well, at the time when I started this, I was working for Nike. I'd worked for Nike in two different periods of time for a total of about 11 years. And I was working on mostly digital experiences for Nike. But there were two things about that experience that were somewhat frustrating. One is that Nike's a big company, and all big companies are political and slow. The internal joke is that you're always trying to turn the Titanic, and it takes a long time to turn the Titanic. Um, and so it's frustrating, and I, again, I don't think this is a Nike problem at all. I think it's probably yeah. better there than a lot of places. But in a big corporation, it's difficult to get innovative ideas through the pipe. It takes a long time and a lot of patience, and you're, you know, you're lucky if one out of every 10 of those kind of makes it to fruition. And the other thing was that there's really interesting things about being an industrial designer who sort of took the skills from making physical things into making digital things. And in so doing, I solved a lot of problems and like, oh man, I can quickly change this and get it out there. We can iterate it. It's instantly available to millions right. of people. And so in some ways, it's very rewarding. Because so much of that process is the same. It is product design and development. Mm -hmm. The downside is there is no actual physical, tangible object anymore. And I was really missing the feeling of having a physical thing sort of show up as the end product of my work. Yeah. You know, I had done that before and I liked it, but I was, there were things that were frustrating about that experience that, you know, working on the digital side solved. But you know, in sort of the, the cycle of going back and forth between those things, I was really missing the feeling of the weight of something in your hands, the texture underneath your fingers and feeling, you know, when you're frustrated by your lack of demonstrable progress in the corporate mm -hmm. world, the desire to be like, I made this thing. Yeah, Here it is. I'm touching it. That was rewarding to me. And yeah. Those are some of the reasons to do it. At the time, I grew up in the Midwest. I grew up as a Boy Scout. I grew up on a farm and around a lot of farmers. I'd always carried a pocket knife. My mom always carried a pocket knife and still has pocket knives around everywhere. And so I was very used to that product being around. And as a kid, I remember it being one of the very first objects that I truly coveted. I remember getting one from my grandmother. And I used to clean it and oil it. And for me and for us at that time, it was like an expensive item. It's an item that conveys a lot of trust because if not used properly, it can be dangerous to yourself, to others, and you're always going to cut your yeah. fingers. And so to me, it was a big deal to get those as a kid. 
And so in my career, I worked for Burton Snowboards for a long time. I was, you know, around a lot of professional snowboarders. And these are people that spend a lot of time outside. And, uh, you know, a lot of these people are on adventures and you know, places where they need a Leatherman. Everyone always had a Leatherman. And they were mm-hmm. counting on pocket knives and things to sort of aid them in, in these adventures. And the kinds of people that, you know, all of us at the time were mountain biking, camping, you know, boating. We were all very much outdoor people. It was kind of work hard, play hard, living up in the mountains of Vermont. And I've kind of, yeah. you know, I spent time in Colorado and a lot of other mountain places, ocean places. So always active, always outdoors, always sort of relying on these tools, both in kind of their more classic, you know, outdoor settings, but also is daily in my office life to open packages and you know, right. deal with packaging and sharpen a pencil or whatever the day may throw at you. It was one of those things that you could kind of never replace. Yeah. So I was a user. I had a perspective on what I wanted to do as someone that carried the stuff, used it pretty often. Ryan, like all entrepreneurs, created a product he wished he had. The industrial designer in him saw a cavernous white space in between what is affectionately known as hook and bullet or military ops styles. He did the exact opposite of the category. While the category tried to put in the kitchen sink into your pocket, the James brand were noticed for their reductive approach to design. They stripped everything down to the heart of what matters, the materials, how it feels in your hand, and an unobtrusive design that you don't mind carrying. As someone who sells professional consulting services, I'm kind of jealous of the gratifying nature of creating a physical product that you can point to and say, I did that. You can't really do that with brand strategy. Oh, well. I think it's one of those products that you don't realize how useful it is until you actually have one especially for somebody who hasn't grown up with having a pocket knife. But I mean, it's one thing to have an idea and see a business white space, but it's an entirely different thing to manufacture and sell a physical product. So tell me about how did you go from, I think the world can use this product to how the hell do you manufacture something like this? It's very difficult. <laughs> that, yeah, I imagine. That part took a long time. But, you know, part of my background, you know, which again, roots in industrial design, the lines blur very quickly between industrial design and then the actual development of that design into a production product and then production. And I think industrial designers that are good industrial designers have a vested interest in all parts of that process because the most rewarding thing is to see the product actually show up on a shelf the way that you intended it to. And so the the more that you actually stay involved in that process and learn about it and design for it, generally the happier you're going to be with the results. Um, So I'd done a lot of that with Burton and with Nike and with other companies and actually knew a lot about materials and processes and spent a lot of time on factory floors and understood the general principles by which things were made. And so, you know, part of the concept in the early days was that here in Portland, Oregon, I mean, this is sort of knife town USA. That's that's not a moniker that I gave it. It it sort of existed before us. But so many of the big knife folks are here in town. So Leatherman. Benchmade, Kershaw, Columbia River Knife and Tool, William and Henry, the list goes on and on. And so the initial thinking was that 
I don't know anything about this. I don't know how to actually produce this product, but I feel confident that I can design one that would sort of meet my needs and thus hopefully the needs of other people like me. Right. And then we'll be able to find people locally in Portland here in Knife Town who can actually help us produce that. There should be a lot of sort of tacit knowledge in the community here. And hopefully, you know, people, resources, manufacturers, people who can help us out. And so we tried that and we made contact with people who are generally sub-suppliers to the big folks, making parts and things for some of the other bigger companies that are controlling their own manufacturing. But they really weren't able to help us very much because we show up with A, you know, a design that is different from what they're doing. We want to do things differently. B, we want very small quantities in order to get started. And C, we don't have any money. Yeah, uh, so yeah. It's not at all an attractive process. Uh, an attractive proposition for someone that is really basing their livelihood on efficiency. Produce the same thing as quickly as you can for as many days in a row as you can possibly do it. And so that was really one of our very first challenges in that we were, you know, the initial vision behind the James brand was that we would make everything here, not only in the United States, but like in Portland, locally. We really wanted to be a local company and the fact that this was Knife Town, I really believed it would be possible to do that, but it really was not possible to do that. And we had to have sort of a sit down moment and just say, hey, what do we want to do here? It doesn't seem like we're going to be able to get this done. We had a contact that had been sort of an executive level person at one of the other knife companies here who sat us down and gave us some advice and said, hey, for what you're trying to do, you really should be exploring contract manufacturing in Asia. It's just more of a service-based mindset with a whole lot of resources who Mm. will probably be willing to take a chance on you and what you're doing. And so he made an introduction for us and we started a conversation. And so we started making our initial products there. And initially, we were basically having all of the parts kind of machined over there. And then we would bring them back to the United States and we would get them painted and coated and laser etched and assembled and tuned and sharpened and doing Mm -hmm. all that work ourselves here. But it became apparent quickly that we just were not very good at that. And someone sat me down. I mean, there were a lot of sit downs during this process. Yeah. Somebody sat me down and said, well, hey, what are you good at? We're good at this. We're good at the content creation, brand positioning, product design, end-to-end consumer experience. Oh, are you any good at manufacturing things? <laughs> no, not no. at all. It's like, well, cool. Stop doing it then. You're, you're yeah. wasting your time and you're actually doing your potential customers a massive disservice. Right. In two ways, by making things that are not great necessarily and splitting your attention. Right. What you should be doing and what you should not be doing. And that was a really great sort of wake-up call. Like, hey, don't try to do everything. Focus on the things where you can actually create value, which is the goal of any business, is to create yeah. sheer value. And let these other people who are good at this part of the process do what they do. So who ended up being your go-to then manufacturing solution when you realized, okay, we're, it's not going to be us? It was a contract manufacturing partner called Maple in Southeast Asia that we worked with for years. And you know, yeah. we'll always give them credit for sort of taking a chance on us and actually working with us mm-hmm. to kind of get us out of the game. I need to just jump in to ask from what you said earlier. I just find it really interesting that you're calling Portland, Oregon, Knife Town. And I would think a lot of entrepreneurs with a business idea 
when you're in Knife Town, why would you be motivated to be another Knife brand? And were you really accepted among the other brands or were they resistant to you coming on the scene? Tell me about that story. There's a few different answers to that. I mean, it is kind of a crowded space here, but there was surely a feeling that there would be knowledge and experience and people here that we can work with. This is also Shoe Town USA, right? But in this mm-hmm. same town, you've got Adidas and Portland, and then Under Armour came and set up shop. And then there's Keen. There's something to be said for just the presence and being like, hey, I'm coming for you. Yeah. And two, they come for talent. I mean, they really do come to poach talent, but it's kind of proof of life. Like there's a community here. I'm like, look, these other people are doing it. Like here's a big company with hundreds of people. Like, they, they, <laughs> right. Maybe right. you can do it too. And so having those things around in some ways is a bit of proof of concept that those people had an idea. I mean, the Tim Leatherman story, you know, he's done a lot of interesting podcasts and things, but it's an amazing story, you know, about one guy who was traveling and had a problem while traveling with his wife and obsessed on that problem and built this massive business around it. And it's like, mm-hmm. he's just a guy locally who met him, you know, know him, know his son, yeah. who had a problem and wanted to fix it. And a lot of other people had the same problems and really responded well to the solution. And so he's not a miracle worker. He's a very driven, focused individual. And I think that same kind of story could be given around, you know, less than the family over at Benchman. And, you know, there are real people behind businesses. Yeah. Um, and Phil Knight is a guy that I saw him weeks ago going to Bed Bath & Beyond with his wife, you know, like <laughs> these, are, these are real people yeah. that live real. Phil needs a comforter too, people. Absolutely. You know, like the sheets matter. So it is kind of proof of life of saying, hey, other people had good ideas and worked really hard in spite of a lot of obstacles and built something out of that. Yeah. And you can do it too. But it's nice to be surrounded by real examples of that and have them be close. To drive by and see the Benchmade sign is motivating to me. And I do really feel, and you know, we're small relative to a lot of those folks, but the general response has been a little bit of like the more the merrier. And I think to us, people say, hey, you're actually expanding this market. A rising tide will lift all boats. And mm-hmm. We generally don't compete directly with like a Benchmade or a Leatherman. We, in some ways, are trying to bring new customers, customers that may have no knowledge or affiliation with these other brands into the fold, right. uh, by which they may well get exposed to these other brands and be customers of theirs as well. Right. Everyone's been pretty accepting of that. I will say that, you know, some of the things that we have done from a marketing perspective, from a packaging perspective, have at least inspired the competition to make changes. And so that's always a worry when you do something new and people go, oh, that's cool what they're doing. That's new. We should do that too. It's far easier to be second to stuff than it is to be first. And so while I think in some ways it's validating to see some of our stuff replicated in these other larger companies, that yeah. also stings a little because you're like, oh, it's much easier for them to make traction in the market just based on their reach than it is for us. Yeah, I mean, it's a great lesson for anyone listening in that competition should inspire founders. It shouldn't be that you're afraid of the competition or looking at them as a threat. It's more about competition inspires more creativity and nimbleness yeah. and ideas. And that's the name of the game. So I think that's great. I remember, um, you know, in the Burton days, 
you know, before I worked for Burton, Burton was like this global, still is this global leader in this whole culture and industry of snowboarding. And so mm -hmm. I started my career working for smaller snowboard companies and we just looked at Burton all the time and they inspired right. us and kind of directed us like what your next move should be, should be to compete against Burton. And so Burton was always sort of in the sights. And in some ways that made it fairly easy to know sort of where things were going and what to respond to. And then I finally ended up working at Boone and sort of being in that position. And it was far, far more difficult because the burden mm -hmm. on you was to actually be the leader. And actually, yeah. you know, you, you're now the first person to make the tracks in the snow. Yeah. Uh, and that's a lot harder slog than the people that follow. And I think before I was in that position, and the same existed with Nike, uh, you know, but when I, before I was in that position, I always thought being in the leadership position must be the easy one. Right. You're the leader. It's you would think. what you do. Yeah, but it's really, it was not like that at all because now you actually have the responsibility to innovate and to chart the course and know that other people are going to follow. And that was a big wake-up call for me. Like, oh man, you really have a lot of responsibility on your shoulders now. Yeah, that's that's definitely a whole new way of looking at it because I'm sure everyone thinks the grass is greener. And then once you get there, you're like, you know what? This is actually really hard. Rather than be intimidated by starting a knife business in Knifetown, Oregon, Ryan tapped into the collective knowledge and experience around him at those businesses to help the James brand. And the flip side is signing a lease in the middle of Knifetown when you're starting a knife brand, it does give you kind of immediate cred. It's sending that not so subtle message of, hey guys, we're coming for you. And to that point, our default might be to think it's easy to be a market leader, right? But it's far easier to be a challenger brand. When you think about it, challenger brands have permission to shake things up and often inspire market leaders to make changes. I remember seeing this firsthand when I was working in the baby food category. There were a handful of these small up and coming brands nipping at Gerber and Beechnut's heels. And they were actually gaining traction with new moms because they were organic and made with fewer ingredients. And as a result, it's what we now know today is that they forced those giants to change their ingredient game for the better. Okay, let's get back to talking about sharp, pointy things now. I want to transition a little bit to the brand itself. My purpose with this podcast in particular is to bring out the humanity behind the brands that I speak to. And I feel like the James brand already has a head start. So why did you think it was important to really personify your brand and name it James? Well, I think the idea of personifying things in general with brands is really, really important. People matter. And for us, James was sort of this muse of this person that was living sort of this almost idyllic lifestyle that allowed them to be very well balanced between sort of urban professional endeavors and outdoor recreational endeavors and this ability to move fairly seamlessly from one environment to the other. And that was the thing that we were really seeing, I think, culturally with people live in cities and on the weekends they go out and they spend mm -hmm. as much time out as they can. They live van life. Van life is actually an urban phenomenon with people radiating out and then coming back. And so the idea of James sort of being this 
person kind of behind that idea was really important to us. But I think also just to go back to the competition for a minute, there was almost no humanity visible in any of the competition in this space. The lead story was always products, features, steals. It's not that they didn't have any lifestyle imagery. They did occasionally, but it was fairly light. And there was no great storytelling. And I think one of the interesting things about this category and probably any category is that there are these amazing people who are using these products whose stories can be told. But most of the people that are actually sort of hard users of a lot of our products are living these really amazing, inspirational lives. And I wanted to sort of bring that to the forefront. And I think it was important to do that because these products historically being sort of segmented off into pure outdoor or, you know, this tactical hook and bullet world, yeah. we're completely missing the context of, hey, how do these products help these other really interesting people live these lives. How does a professional helicopter pilot rely on a pocket knife and a titanium pen to get them through the day? How does, you know, Savannah Cummins, the professional Nat Geo photographer and rock climber, depend on her redstone to help her out when she's in Nepal? The answer to that question is a brief for a beautiful chunk of content that should really help A, provide context to our products, but B, inspire people. And there was really a desire to inspire people. You know, there's something very analog about what we're trying to do. It is sort of intentionally non-digital. I would agree because it seems like while what you sell are physical products that is all about utility, but it really does seem that you're selling some sort of a lifestyle. Yeah, that's right. And, you know, I think that is a goal of ours is to sell this lifestyle and get people out there and active and, you know, maybe heads out of the phones and screens for a bit and go do things. And so the interesting thing about the knife part of this business in particular, it's the most analog of all experiences. It, you know, maybe one of the very first human tool interactions is this idea of cutting things into two dividing things up. It's a purely physical endeavor and it's required to do things like make wheels and fire. And so there's a very human part of our relationship with this tool. And if you're using it, you are probably in the moment and probably doing something physical and, and hopefully important. It's not always the case when you're opening Amazon boxes, but you know, <laughs> when you're outside and you're sort of dependent on this product and it delivers something for you that enables a real deal analog experience, that is very valuable. We kind of have this framing of like, hey, we really want to like provide you with the things that you carry in your pocket on a daily basis to enable your life. A lot of those things have been swallowed up by your smartphone. And that's fine. That provides a lot of value. Mm -hmm. But the things that are not easily swallowed up, it shines a light on those things and makes them more important. So, you know, there's a, there's a good use case for, you know, with a pocket knife and a cell phone and, you know, a pen and a notebook, you're probably set up for almost anything. But there's almost <laughs> no way to remove that pocket knife from your pocket and put it within a smartphone. And there's something really interesting about that concept of like, eh, my car keys are going to go in there. My wallet's going to go in there. Maybe at some point, like my pen and pencil will go in there, although that's got a long way to go. But mm -hmm. it's really hard to imagine this very physical, very direct act of cutting things into two, getting absorbed in there. Yeah. Um, so it's a, it's a counterpoint to the digitization of all of those other experiences. 
Yeah. I'm all about analog. I have my Blackwing pencil right here that oh, yeah. it looks with. So Our Blackwing collaboration is coming up here in uh, mid, nice. mid next month, I think. Yeah. I was hoping to hear something like that because I was like, you guys need to collaborate if you're not already, so I'm glad. Okay, that wraps up part one of my conversation with Ryan Coulter, founder of The James Brand. A quick summary of what we covered. Sometimes finding your brand's white space lies in between two extremes. In the James Brand case, it was creating a middle ground for those who were not in the traditional hunting and fishing audience, nor were they into military tactical ops. I think by doing this, in many ways, they actually created an audience that wasn't there before. They made carrying a pocket knife cool for the everyday and for everyday people. I'm into it. Secondly, they took the less is more approach to design. While the category relied on more features, more function, the James brand took a beat to strip away everything and get to the simplest form, kind of taking a page from Apple's book. Thirdly, I admire the audacity of creating a startup smack in the middle of big legacy players. Challenger brands have license to push the envelope in ways market leaders just can't. And the James Brown, surrounded by their competition, stayed true to their vision, marketed to the middle, and established their footing. Very admirable. And lastly, if you've been listening to this podcast, by now you know I'm all about the analog. There is something about the physicality of certain acts like writing, carving, and cutting that cannot be replaced by our smartphones. And while the knives may serve a functional need, of course, it taps into that primal part of our brains that tells us we need to take care, slow down, because we have something heavy and sharp in our hands. Next up is part two of my conversation with Ryan, where we get into how obsessing over the details is so critical to creating a brand people love. And if you can't wait, check them out on thejamesbrand.com. This has been an episode of Uncooked. I'm Jacqueline Lieberman, founder and chief strategist at Brand Crudo, a marketing consultancy. If you want to discuss how your company can find differentiation and activate your raw truth in marketing, this is what I do every day. You can find my contact info on brandcrudo.com or the show notes. And I haven't asked for this in a while, but if you haven't given us a review in a while, could you please do so? That's the only way that the show gets better. Thanks so much for listening.